Clay Hayes is a highly experienced bushman, or in the States, where he grew up and lives, they would say woodsman. From a very early age, he decided that he wanted to be in tune with the bush, and he was drawn to bow hunting and the simplicity of it. When he left school, he studied wildlife biologies and attained a master's in it, and then worked for Idaho Fish and Game for 17 years, working with landscapes and wildlife, and then decided to leave and pursue YouTube so he could be closer to really pushing himself in the outdoors compared to a nine to five job. More recently, he was on Alone, season eight, and he won it due to his woodsman skills and his very well-practiced bow hunting abilities, which saw him get a deer, which without, he wouldn't have won the series. He's since gone back to his lifestyle in the bush with his family and has a completely different way of living. And his YouTube channel continues to grow and his life success continues. I really hope you enjoy my chat with Clay Hayes. So we're in a tent in the middle of nowhere by most people's standards in Idaho. And just a bit of backstory. So I came, landed in a, a city in Idaho and hitched for kind of day and a half. And Clay and I met up using two various different brands of satellite tracker and met up at a, a road junction. And we did a quick trip in a town. They did a restock because he's been out bush for two weeks already with his family on a kind of long-term hunting trip. And then we drove back out into the bush for a matter of hours to a very beautiful spot, a valley with beautiful mountains. It's cold, it was frosty last night. And we're now sitting in a large tent. It's a big white canvas tent, 16 by 20. And they've got beds set up for the fam. So uh, his wife, Liz, and two kids, Koi, who's 14, and Finn, who's 11. Finn, sorry. And yeah, they're living out here and this is the kind of thing that they do long-term. So I'm gonna be out here for a couple of weeks. So it's a really cool opportunity to learn from him. So this first episode, we're just gonna get the background of Clay and his life. And then at the end of this trip, I'll take note of a few extra questions and dive deeper into some little squirrely areas. So Clay, thanks so much for coming on. Um, can you just kind of give us the background of how you, your life story really, that how you got to be sitting out here? Yeah, so first of all, uh, we'd love to have you here. Thanks for coming out. Thanks, um, life story. Man, so I, I grew up in uh, Florida, southeastern U.S., uh, warm, kind of semi-tropical environment. <clears throat> um, but there was something in me, I don't know where it comes from, some genetic memory perhaps that just kind of always drew me to the outdoors and hunting uh fishing just pursuing you know stuff and being in the woods um and so ever since i was a kid uh i was out in the woods with a cane pole or whittling a bow and arrow out of you know whatever i could find in the woods making a hay string you know using hay string for a, a bow string making primitive traps deadfalls and stuff like that um, and I was I grew up at a time when the part of the state that I grew up in was still very rural 
there was not a lot of development. I grew up on a ranch, so I had land where I could go and do these things. I had creeks and woods and you know lots of lots of land to roam on, um, and that draw that that fascination with the outdoors and wildlife just kind of never left me. Um, went to uh, went all through high school, went to college, and started into a degree in wildlife management. Um, ended up with a master's degree in wildlife ecology uh, because it was such just such a passion. I wanted to be outside. I wanted to be working with wildlife, wildlife habitat. Um, Did you have any particular long-term goal that you're aiming for specifically or just? No, I mean, I just wanted it. Well, yeah. So I, I, my, the way my mind works, like I can't, making long-term plans, like step by step, like I want to do this so that I can do this so that I can do this. That just doesn't work for me. <laughs> I have to, like, I just figure out, like, I see the next step and I try to get there and I don't worry about what comes later. Yeah. I just, I can't. I can't plan like that and so you know ever since I was a little kid like I just wanted to be out west like yeah. I that was my only goal I just, I just want to be out west I want to be in the mountains I want to be able to hunt elk I want to be you know where there's grizzly bears roaming around and that's like the only thing that I thought about and there was no one in your family that you're necessarily following is that right no yeah, no. My my dad's not a hunter. Uh, I have two brothers, and they've kind of dabbled in hunting a little bit, um, but they're not, you know, they're not hunters. I'm the only one in my family that that kind of pursued that path. Um, but I I wanted to be out west, and I wanted to work with wildlife and be in the woods, basically. And the and the path that I saw to that was something in the biology or forestry or wildlife management type fields and so that's what I pursued um, and, it, and it, it, I eventually ended up getting uh, a job as a wildlife biologist in the state of Idaho and I worked with um, wildlife habitat so instead of working with any particular species like you know elk or deer or whatever I worked with their environment and so I was working with basically a whole suite of species because when you work with the habitat itself there's you know, lots and lots of different species that use those habitats. Um, but that, I guess, e even still when I was in high school, I was, I was interested in filming stuff. I always had it when I was in the woods, probably since I was 18, 19 years old, I was carrying a camera with me. You know, back then it was the, had the tapes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you had all that stuff to deal with, but like I wanted I had this idea that I wanted to make like a um an outdoor like a hunting film or a hunting hunting videos but differently than what I was seeing back then <laughs> yeah, it's funny I'll have exactly the same thing yeah well what you know what I was <clears throat> what I was seeing like when I was in high school on like the outdoor channel or what the sportsman channel whatever whatever channel we're broadcasting these things there were very few shows that actually showed like the the side of hunting that I felt most strongly about like it was all about sh you know um, you know shooting a huge whitetails or um, you know going out and, and a lot of times these were like very expensive hunts that were on private land and they're they're killing these giant bull elk which you would never find on public land very 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 rarely. 
Um, and then they, the other thing they did was they talked a lot about their, the stuff that they were using. It was they were basically making infomercials back in the 90s. Yeah. And I saw that and I was like, that is, that's not hunting. You know, that's not like there's all of these other things that go into hunting. Like just being a, like, for example, uh, a couple of years ago, I was standing out here and I'm just standing with my bow in front of me and a chickadee comes and lands on my bow. Like little tiny little experiences like that, that like, that are part of the whole experience in hunting. Um, and I wanted to be able to show that type of stuff. And so, you know, as I'm going through my college and getting my, my, my degrees in wildlife biology and all that stuff, I'm, I'm filming stuff as well. And, uh, finally put out I think I put out my first YouTube video in 2008 um, and it was like about teaching people how to build bows because that was another interest of mine bushcraft and, and, and teaching people people how to build bows um, and then in 2013 I think I put out my first like hunting film which was called untamed and it did really well oh right first video like first proper one on yeah hunting. first like actual hunting focused video um and then it just kind of started like the youtube stuff started kind of picking up after that and i was doing the wildlife biology the youtube like concurrently yeah and i did did that until 2017 and at that point it was like i was making a little bit of money on youtube um and i was working full-time in wildlife biology so i was basically working two full-time jobs and got to the point where um, I thought I could make it in YouTube, just doing YouTube stuff. So I left my job that I had basically 17 years of my life invested in with the 10 years in the job and plus the, all of the college that I did. Just like totally walked away from that. And how many followers did you have then? I don't, probably, I don't know, eighty thousand maybe, yeah. eighty thousand subscribers, something like that. I don't, I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that was in two thousand seventeen, and I just kind of did that. Uh, I was doing YouTube stuff. I was doing like freelance videography, video production for other people. I was writing magazine articles. I, um, I think I wrote a, my first. Like, I put my first book out, which is just like a compilation of old articles, magazine articles that I'd done, and then uh, I think shortly after I left my job I put out my second book was a which is a bow building book and yeah, so we had different streams of income coming in and these are self-published yep yeah yep. um, and then in 2020 uh, got the opportunity to go out alone and ended up being the last one out there and so how did that happen did you just see an advertisement did someone message you and say hey did you see this you know I think um, I think Joel from season six had actually recommended me to the casting director and it was just like a f totally fluke thing um ended up getting on and i was actually an alternate yeah um which when they when they told me that i was an alternate i was kind of like a kick in the balls <laughs> i was like are you freaking kidding me <laughs> for an alternate but it was it was actually probably the best thing um for me yeah it was kind of like a it was like an ego check. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but luckily they had they had they were trying to cast a guy from the UK and just another kind of 
freak thing is like that COVID had locked down travel. So he wasn't able to come and that was my ticket in. Had you seen the episodes before Joel got onto you? Um, I had seen a few. Yeah, I'd seen my, my nephew, Philip actually introduced me to the show a couple years before. Um, and I'd seen a few of the episodes that were on YouTube. And I, I knew like right off the bat from seeing those episodes, like, yeah, that's, that's legit. Like, you know, reality TV is normally just like totally manipulated and staged. Um, but from, and I had been actually, I'd talked to casting people about shows before like being on stuff and I never got a good feeling about it like even to the point um I always felt like they want they had an idea who they wanted me to be yeah before I even ever talked to them yeah and when I talked to Quinn the casting director for Alone it was not like that at all she just wanted to know who I was yeah and so it was totally different than any other casting person I'd ever talked to um but from the first couple of episodes I saw on YouTube, I was like, if, you know, if I'm ever going to be on a TV show, like that's prop, that's going to be it. And just lucked into, you know, having that opportunity a couple years later. So going into that, you were, I guess, a well-established hunting person in, in the States, really, with, with credibility in hunting and, and making videos. So they would have seen you as you would you'd be seen by a subject matter expert by quite a number of people i guess yeah at least eighty thousand, probably probably <laughs> maybe 150 by then i don't know yeah and so i mean people kind of watch the series um yeah, obviously the the thing that stands out is is getting that deer and it, it would be kind of easy for someone to think oh well you know he was just lucky a deer came along how would you respond to that kind of thing? Like, I would say that uh, there was a lot of, lot of luck involved. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yep. Because yep. that was, um, it was a game scarce area. There was just not, the, the habitat was not such that it would support a lot of game. You know, there was, it was closed canopy forest. Um, and when you have a closed canopy forest like that, and it was high elevation, so there's just not a lot of browse species that would attract big game. And I was there for 74 days, and I saw two deer, and I was able to kill one of them. Yeah. Um, normally, <clears throat> when you're hunting with a, a traditional bow, you need lots of opportunities because you're normally you normally mess up a lot of opportunities. Yeah. Because you know maybe the wind shifts just a little bit and they and they smell you maybe they just don't walk in the right place like i've been here hunting hunting out for two weeks and i've had multiple opportunities and things just haven't worked out i've seen probably 50 elk and have yet to to get an arrow into one of them yeah um and so just seeing the deer uh in such a game sparse area was a, kind of a stroke of luck you know but at the same time I'd say that um, had I not had the experience with bow hunting that I had given that opportunity I wouldn't have been uh, in the position to take advantage of it yeah and you're probably in the in the most probable spot because of your experience and you know positioned in a way that the wind was a certain way I'd like yeah there's a whole bunch of factors that got you that and, 
Chance. You know, but the other the other thing with luck is that, <coughs> you know, I, it would be would have been very easy. Like, ha had I not had the experience with hunting, um, especially bow hunting that I had, it would have been very easy just to say, "Well, there's no deer here." Yes, it's like just just there's no deer here. Hunting is useless, and focus on something else. Um, and if I had done that, you know, of course, I never would have found that deer but um you know i knew there was a few deer there i also knew that they were had probably never seen a human before in that area is that an advantage or a oh, disadvantage yeah. that's absolutely an advantage yep. like these elk that were hunting here they are very sly because they're they're pursued all the time and so they get shy of calls um if they see you and identify you as a human like they're not sticking around yeah like an animal that is unaccustomed to that they'll give you a you have better chance of um like uh they'll stick around and try to figure out what you are you know yeah and so you you've seen it so did you stalk up on that one or how did it arise yeah i was still hunting and so for the people who aren't familiar with what still hunting is um, it's basically moving through the woods very slowly, methodically, uh, and in tune with what's going on. So you're listening very carefully. You're looking. So you're, you'll take a step. You'll look at everything that it's exposed. And you're looking for pieces of deer. So you might be looking for a leg or an ear or something. You know, you, you very rarely see a whole animal. Um, and then you take another step and, and that changes your perspective just a little bit, you know, relative to the trees and brush and all that stuff. And you look and you listen and you just very slowly creeping through the woods like that. Um, you're trying to see an animal before it knows that you're there and then you can decide what to do. With that deer, um, I was doing that and I, there was a red squirrel there, little, you know, probably 10 inches long overall. And he, he ran up the tree. I spooked him. He ran up a tree and started barking at me, their, their warning call. And so I just stopped and squatted down and just kind of let the woods calm down a little bit. And when that squirrel ran up a tree, there, there happened to be, and I didn't know this at the time, but there, there was a deer very close. And that kind of alerted the deer. So the deer stood up. And when I stood back up, the deer saw movement and bounded off and stopped at like 40 yards which is outside of my effective range with my bow <laughs> but i saw the deer and it was a young buck a year and a half old buck um and i just froze he didn't know what i was he didn't uh, I, I think he just saw movement or maybe he heard me i don't know but he stopped and he and he looked back and I had just frozen and I watched his body language and you can tell uh, when big game you can tell what they're thinking basically through their body language and at first his ears were his head was up his ears were pointed directly at me and because I didn't move he wasn't seeing me and eventually he he started to relax and you can watch their ears and he had one ear that kind of flicked back then he'd flick back again and then he started browsing. I was like, okay, I've, I've got a chance. Like he doesn't, 
he doesn't smell me he perhaps thought I was just the squirrel and he when he put his head down to start browsing I grunted at him and that's a, a um, the that's a vocalization that deer make is just a meh, meh, that type of thing and I grunted at him he picked his head up and looked and of course I was still and he he went back to browsing but he turned and he started coming feeding his way back to me and he fed up to 25 yards is that because he felt you were a deer and he wanted company yep um, he fed up to about 25 yards and just another stroke of luck he stopped with his head behind a tree so he couldn't see me and that gave me an opportunity to draw um, I drew and, and made the shot and made a really good shot, hit him through both lungs and he went, you know, probably 60, 70 yards and died. Um, so in that moment leading up to the shot, like, there's a lot riding on it. Oh yeah. You know, half a million dollars, credibility, once in a lifetime, all that kind of stuff. Did that enter your brain or you focused 100% on? Never even crossed my mind. Right. Um, which is, know. which is, um, well, there can be several reasons for it. Some people just naturally focus. And I'd say in, with your experience, you just, you're just totally in the zone. There isn't those outside thoughts that disrupt focus, but that's definitely a factor that can enter people's minds and make them second guess and perform differently. Yeah. I'm, and it's very fortunate that that stuff didn't cross my mind because I probably, that's a difficult, I mean, 25 yards on a deer sized target is for me that's a fairly long shot um, elk that's no problem because elk are you know four times as big as a deer you also have like a very practiced shot cycle don't you so everything's everything's every movement is thought out there's this then there's that then there's that then there's that and, and so you're going through that process i guess in fairly quick time yeah and i didn't um i mean i don't think about those things it just i've done it so much it's just kind of automatic now okay um but yeah. But it, when, it, when you've drawn back, you're still, I don't know the name of the technique, but when you release, it's a surprise, so you can't flinch, all that kind of stuff. You were, in, you were instinctively doing all those things as you normally would. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. And yeah, it flies off and, and you get it. And then you obviously you wait, right? Yeah, I actually, um, when, I, when I shot the deer, I wasn't, I wasn't entirely sure where I hit him. Um, so I just laid down right there and took a short nap. And so um, can you explain why you don't just run after it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so with a deer that's hit in the lungs or anywhere in the um, longer heart area, they're not gonna go far. Like they're dead within seconds, um, literally. I mean, five to 10 seconds and they're done. If you hit a deer in say the liver, um, you know, it could take several hours for them to, to die. <clears throat> and so we try, of course, we always aim for the, the clean, quick kill. But it doesn't, you know, doesn't always work that way. And so if you, if you make a marginal shot on a deer, um, the arrow passes through them so quickly that they don't even, a lot of times they don't even know that they're hit. And so they're not really spooked that bad. And so they'll bound off a little ways and they'll bed down because they don't feel so good. And if you go after them too quickly, if they're not already dead, 
that you can you'll bump them out of their bed and then they run off and then they're spooked and then they'll run for a long way and it can be very very difficult to find but if you let them sit they'll die in peace and they'll be right there you know probably most of the time less than 100 yards from where you got them yep. so in a way it's like for them they're just in the bush all of a sudden they, they feel a bit off yep. so they just lie down and go to sleep and don't wake up yeah and uh, so a good example of that is um <clears throat> i uh the first deer i ever shot with a, a self bow a bow that a wooden bow that i made um just from a tree i hit um a little bit back so it was a liver hit and i shot her and the arrow went through her so quickly it stuck in the ground on the other side and she didn't even react she she tensed up she flinched she looked at the arrow and then she walked calmly off out of the field where i shot her and in my inexperience i was i think i was 18 or 19 years old <clears throat> i waited like 10 minutes and got down and i said well i'll just i went and looked at my arrows covered in blood went and um i said well i'll just look i'll just go to the edge of the field and just look and see what I can see. And she had walked no more than 20 yards and had bedded down right there. And when I walked to the edge of the field, she got up and ran off and I never found her. And that was a lesson well learned. If I had just given her some time, she would have died peacefully right there and I would have had my deer, but. And so on a line, you say you lay down and had a nap for 60 minutes. Yeah, it was yeah. probably an hour or so. Yeah, okay. But, I mean, he was, like I said, he was dead within probably, you know, five to ten seconds. And I think that one had, was a four-pointer or something, and you had, that was the only legal one you could get, I think. I was... So it was it was actually a spike. Um, I think for the first, ten, first 12 days or so of the time that we were out there, it was four four point only which means four points on one side so it's a like a mature buck and i thought well like the odds of that are incredibly incredibly low like first of all find just finding an animal like that and then being able to get get a good shot on one and so i didn't even really hunt for the first 12 days um but after that 12 days it went to any buck you know uh, so we still had that buck only regulation uh, just not the not the more restrictive four point rule. And so the result of getting that is that was that pretty much without that deer you don't think you would have won? Uh, absolutely, yeah. No, they would have they would have ended up pulling me off for you know malnutrition probably because yep. the the fishing um, I caught I caught I think five or six fish that first week. And then after that, the fishing, we had a, we had a pretty cold snap come through. And after that cold snap, like the, I didn't catch another fish on the rod and reel that I made. Yeah. I caught one fish in a gill net after that. Yeah. And so you put on 20 pounds, so eight, nine kilos. Um, so yeah, just, you just didn't have that, mm -hmm. that reserve to be able to draw on. Yeah. And what's the fat percentage of deer meat? I don't know, pretty low, but he was a, he was a healthy deer. So they, he had some, um, deer will accumulate fat on their rumps. Um, and then, uh, in around their inter internal organs and the kidneys and stuff will have fat. And so I took all of that and rendered it down to make it basically shelf stable, uh, and just had that. So every time I would 
cook some of the deer or whatever I had mushrooms and I was picking berries and stuff I'd just take a chunk of that fat off and throw it in the pot so I had the fat to go along with the protein and and carbs and all that stuff that I was getting cool and so because of COVID Liz couldn't come and visit you out in the bush because you did the sat phone call mm -hmm. back home so how was that you know several months afterwards getting home and knowing that you'd won and contemplating how you might you know deal with a half million dollars all that kind of stuff what's that process like well they kept they kept me at uh um at location for i think 10 days 10 or 12 days post coming out um refeeding how, how uh, long did your refeeding program go for about the, the, the time that that i was there the full 10 yeah yeah okay um and then uh they had interviews and stuff to do afterward but um, Liz and I talked on the phone quite a bit during that time um, but then just coming home was was pretty awesome and they met me at the at the airport and yeah. got to see everybody for the first time and it was close to 100 days or maybe over 100 days because we had we had a two-week quarantine we had 10-day orientation and that was all before we ever went to the woods yeah. uh, and then the 10 days on that backside of the 74 days that I was out there so yeah it was over over 100 days that I was gone and 74 of which was with no communication at all with the family so so Koi that's um played sons just behind there Koi what did you think when uh when you heard that dad had won that didn't we talked to him on uh, the phone and I didn't even recognize his voice the, I didn't even know did you just think, wow, that's... Uh, it, was, it was because my voice was cracking up because I was emotional. Oh, right, yeah. I, they yeah. didn't even know who I was. <laughs> I never, they never heard that kind of emotion in my voice. Did you think he was likely going to win? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good answer. Yeah. Yeah, they, I don't think there, there was there was never any, of course, you know, of course he's going to win. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. There was never any doubt in their mind. And that was a big motivation for me. You know, they, they had, especially Liz had... Um, made a big sacrifice, you know, had just allowing me to be out there. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I wasn't, I had already made up my mind, like when I went out there, like they were, I was either going to be the last one or they were going to pull me out. Yeah. You know, I was not going, like the, the tap out button was not an option. Yeah. For me. I, I the same, the same mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And, but yeah, there is luck involved as well. Like you can just be in a spot where there's, no food and other someone else has more weight on than you and yep. it's a starving competition and you're yep. not going to win it if you're not the biggest person <laughs> yeah. yeah just back on the refeed program so um just for those that don't know when you are reintroduced to nutrients again you can have an adverse reaction and it's it basically goes back to the concentration camps of world war ii when um, the americans liberated um the people from the concentration camps they just gave them all the food they wanted and and it, quite a few of them ended up dying um, yeah, potassium, sodium levels can go out. And so doctors to this day are very worried about that. So they, they introduce nutrients quite slowly. How, when you got out, like we, were you eating much before they pulled you out? And like how much, how many calories did they start you off on? I don't know the, I don't know the calorie count, um, but they started me off real, pretty quickly because I was eating pretty well. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't eating a lot, uh, but I, <clears throat> one of the things that they kind of manipulated with my story was um, they said that I was out of deer meat. They said that I had run out of deer meat. Um, 
and kind of use some of my audio from something else to make it sound like I said that. Um, but I, I wasn't out of deer meat at all. I still had a whole bag of like smoked and dried deer meat. I had lots of mushrooms. I had a whole, I had gallons of berries. Yeah. And so I was eating, you know, at least one good meal a day. And so when I came out, I think the first meal that I had was like, I don't know, smoked salmon and, and um, uh, asparagus and you know, stuff like that. But <clears throat> like a lot of people that just are not eating, I mean, they start them on bone broth for a day or two and then they just really slowly, you know, reintroduce foods to them. But I was pretty fortunate. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Yeah. And so the um, the effect afterwards. I mean, obviously. So I think you you paid off the house or something. I think you said on TV yeah. or something. So that's that's great. That's a <laughs> yeah nice thing to have done. Yeah. After that, though, like you went back to doing the same YouTube on that same you know YouTube ladder. Is that right? Yeah. And how did how did that exposure affect? Things? it um it was uh, great for us uh when it went on the so one year after um so that next june i think it, it went on the uh the history channel and i got a little bit of bump in the youtube stuff from that uh, but the youtube or the um the history channel viewership is relatively small but one year after that it went on netflix and netflix is massive and when it went on netflix that's when the real numbers started coming in i think i think i was at like 180 thousand or something like that when it went on netflix and now a year later i'm at 370 or something like that 370,000. but it i was gaining when it went on Netflix for like three months in a row, I was getting like thirty to 40,000 subscribers a month, um, which is n way more than I would normally have got. Yeah, cool. So it a, the, the exposure on Netflix was huge for us. Yep. And that's where I found you. In fact, so when I was prepping for a loan, I went through the, you know, the net making stuff and I think I, I came across you there. And then the, actually the friend, Lucy, who's walking across the world, she said, oh, you got to, watch this guy clay has i really like the way she he does his videos because she's sort of into that too and that's where i really i think i hit the subscribe button then and then and then i sort of use that as a, as a go-to like yeah i like the way you taught that net lesson so if i want to learn about something else i'll see what else you got and yeah so that that was it's kind of how you get introduced to people i guess and it is a it is a it is amazing what you can learn from youtube like oh, anything uh, in the world yeah i mean you can read a book about something but it won't teach you as much as just watching someone do it. And a well-made video is the best way to impart knowledge. Yeah. As, as a flying instructor in the, in the military, like I used to film a lot from the cockpit because you'd have these books that tell you how to do everything. But I would get the point of view and show, show where I looked for everything. And, and then I do the lookout and then I check my engine. And then, um, then I look to the right to look for the spacing for the runway. And if people can see that, it's, it's like they're inside your brain. So it's the same thing when someone makes a video on how to make a net and they you can see where the finger's going and it's and it's from the perspective of where your hands are so it's not left you're not when you backwards look, it's not yeah. backwards yeah so that's what i love about video t 
teaching and you can just you can learn anything on youtube you can strip a car down yeah you change your head gaskets put it all back together but if you read a book it's impossible to, yep. to understand yeah yeah and so moving on from here you, you you're keeping going with your existing lifestyle so can you describe what your lifestyle is at the moment yeah i can i can try um so one the 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 two things that are most important to me are, are family and my freedom. And so that's really why I do what I do is, is, is I get to spend more time with them and I, we can, we, we have all the freedom in the world. Um, and, uh, I had someone that I respect a lot one time tell me that freedom doesn't exist. And for a lot of people, it doesn't, especially in, in the world we live in. I mean, we're, we're kind of slaves to our possessions, our our jobs, you know, whatever. And I, th I, I thought, man, that's a sad outlook. It's like, I don't feel that way at all. I mean, I feel like I can, we can come out here for six weeks. I can drop, I can drop everything and we can go to Mexico and live there for a year if we want to. As long as I have an internet connection once a month, I'm good. Um, and so I, I like that. Uh, so what we, our typical year is we have a, a homestead in Idaho. We'll spend around nine months a year in Idaho. And usually when winter really sets in, Janu early January, we'll go to back to our family's ranch in Florida. And we have a bunkhouse down there that we can stay in at my, my folks' ranch down there. We'll spend three months down there. Um, Liz and I will go down to South Florida, we'll go fishing. Um, and we're constantly making videos the whole time. So when I'm down there, I'm like hunting feral pigs um, and doing different, you know, survival and bushcraft videos down there. And we do the same thing here. Like I'll produce some videos while we're out here at elk camp. And once we get back, I'll edit them, upload them to YouTube. And that's kind of what we do. Yeah. And, uh, and the kids, I was asking when we were in the car, are you kids on holidays? And the answer was no, they're homeschooled so basically you, that's not a factor you don't have to factor in yeah when when we first started the traveling back and forth from idaho to to florida we we actually had tried them in public school um but it was just not sustainable there was such a big difference in the curriculum from where they are in idaho versus where they are in florida that there's just it just wasn't working um, so we at that time after that first year we decided to or during that first year we decided to start homeschooling um, and we just it's there it's kind of like for Koi it's pretty self-directed like he has an interest in sailing in um, airplanes um, and stuff like that and so like some of the things that we've done for school is we built a um, latine rig uh, sailing canoe the, down in Florida. Uh, we built a trebuchet in Idaho. I mean, we, we build stuff that incorporates math. Um, I mean, you get like practical skills, like, you know, he's he can run a skill saw and, and nail gun and all of that stuff. And he's getting, you know, so he's getting the practical skills of that, but then he's also, you know, figuring math and things like that. And, um, you know, he, he does some, like actual school stuff too. 
uh, Liz has some workbooks that they go through with different like math lessons and stuff, but he can do all that stuff himself. Yeah. Finn's a little Finn's different. Finn's on a different program, um, so Liz works with him more closely than we do with Coy. Yeah, it's just different personalities and different you know needs. And I guess that's one of the benefits of doing it is you can tailor it specifically yeah. for each one. Yep. Yeah. And it yeah means that they you can go anywhere anytime with complete freedom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. And so this camp, you you come out for six weeks. You've been hunting elk. They've been scarcer than they have in the past when you've been here, right? Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been tough, and, and last year was a tough season too. Um, but they're still around. You know, um, I think I've I was telling you earlier. I got I've been close, like maybe four times, and you just gotta. It's an odds. It's a numbers game, right? You just the more time you spend in places that elk frequent, the better your chances are. And so just spending time in the woods um, and eventually things kind of line up. Yeah. Koi's just pulled out a, 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 looks like a homemade hull of a boat, looks awesome. <laughs> yeah, so that's, uh, we, we, I've got a sawmill at my house and um, I sawed some slats, cedar slats, and so he figured out how to make that thing all by himself basically just like drew out the pieces and laminated them get together and he's, he, he's a he's a he's he likes making boats yeah yeah i saw his drawings last night now he's now he's whittling it with a leatherman yeah it's cool so on that um on that elk stuff so can you like so for me what what i'm interested in in australia and worldwide is is how sustainable is things like because i mean i i definitely have the hunter's instinct but i obviously concerned that is it is it sustainable if I'm out there and I take another one out? Is that that last kind of species? You know, is it is that an important member of that community? So can you explain the way you um, sort of justify that and and how it's managed here in the states and, and how you feel like the the animal numbers are going? Yeah, sure. Um, so in the United States, um, we manage uh, wildlife populations very closely. Uh, and it depends on species, like what the requirements are for to manage healthy populations. Um, in Idaho, we have uh, uh, you have to have a hunting license, and so uh, the 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 money that's generated through the sale of hunting licenses goes directly back to wildlife management, and so you have it goes to fund the population staff that do the aerial surveys and all of that stuff it goes to wildlife habitat management um, so creating or enhancing wildlife habitat and so you have a system where where hunters are basically funding um, the wildlife management in the, in the US in, in large part um, and so in Idaho uh, the Idaho Fish and Game will survey um, wildlife populations and determine like what is the what's the carrying capacity of the land first of all what's the surplus of wildlife that's out there and then they allocate tags based on that so when I go hunting I have an elk tag with me and, and that's and the, what's a tag it's just a basically a, um, a slip of paper that gives me the the opportunity to hunt that animal and if I if I end up killing one then I, uh, I notch the date 
into that tag and I attach it to the animal and that's that's it I'm done hunting in other areas of the US um, they just do like a bag limit or with different species they'll do a bag limit uh, like in the uh, in Florida for instance there's no tag there's no physical tags um, but there are a lots there, there are tons of deer down there and so the population can sustain a much increased harvest um, and so down there you can, I think it's your bag limit is like a deer a day for the entire you know three month season and people kill a lot of deer down there but it's you know the population can sustain that because whitetails are super productive um, and so there, there's no chance there's no um, risk of driving the population down to where they're endangered or anything like that so up here with elk there obviously are limited numbers so you're saying for shooting with a rifle there's only a, a quite a limited number of tags based as a small percentage of what they've observed yeah in, in their observation program yeah so and it varies by region in the state you know some areas where there's more elk there'll be a more liberal um, seasons and then areas where there's not as many or perhaps where they're uh, more exposed there'll be a li more limited um, number of tags uh, for this area there the, the 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 tags for archery are unlimited like is you know you can sell however many people want to buy them because it's a more difficult hunt it's harder it's just harder to kill an elk with a with a bow um, but with a rifle it's much easier and so they 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 limit the number of tags and they allocate those tags through a lottery system so you have to put your name in um, and I think this year it was like a 10% chance that you would draw a tag uh, and Finn actually we put Finn in for this tag and he was lucky enough we put him in last year too and he didn't draw but this year he drew the tag so we'll be here during that that rifle season yeah cool and so you're, you're confident that that they do monitor um, accurately and that it therefore is sustainable because it is a, a mature well-run system oh yes absolutely yeah, yeah. and that's good because I mean you obviously worked on the inside as well so yeah. it's good to get an opinion of someone who's seen it from both angles yeah the I mean that that's the whole thing with with um, you know wildlife monitoring or, and, and managing wildlife populations is um, sustainable yield basically yeah which is what indigenous people used to do. Yep. You know, Aboriginal people had their own methods of doing it and, and that's how they could be sustainable with it. Yeah. And so um, on the, uh, the uh, so I've also been uh, speaking to some Australian hunters and they were comparing the American system to the Australian system and they, the Australian system is very different because we generally can't hunt native animals. It's, it's a lot more complicated. I'm still only getting my head around it, but certainly what I understand from the Australians who've done both, they think the American system is a lot better. Yeah, I mean, it, it is different because there's different requirements. Like we're primarily hunting native species. Um, the only uh, uh, the only native species that's like, uh, the only uh, non-native invasive species that we hunt here really is um, feral hogs. And we don't have any of those in Idaho that's mostly a eastern southeastern um, thing and in that case it's more like the what you guys do in Australia in that um, it's very very liberal like 
most of the time there's no it's open season all year round you can take them by any means um, and it's not, not not the case everywhere but let's say for instance Texas I mean you can take a helicopter out and shoot them from helicopters if you want to you can blow them up with dynamite if you wanted to I mean there's no regulations on it at all it's basically they're considered the property of the landowner yeah. um, and a lot of places you don't even have to have a hunting license you just go you shoot as many as you want and the landowners like you were um, you were telling me the other night uh, yes yesterday uh, about some of the stuff in Australia like in uh, in Texas the, it, the feral hogs create problems they compete with native wildlife they are uh, incredibly destructive in agricultural systems and so a lot of times the landowners just go out there and just shoot them and leave them lay so yeah and as for um what how do you compare animal welfare slash cruelty aspects of say bow hunting compared to rifle hunting some people have opinions on it but what's what's your opinion on what's what's the most humane for the animal the most humane for the animal is making a clean shot regardless of weapon if you make a clean shot through the lungs or the heart um, w with whatever an atlatl with a stone point or a high-powered rifle the animals dead very quickly and that's something that's not very well understood um, even sometimes within the hunting community itself like if someone who if someone only has experiences with a rifle they're just biased towards you know hunting with a rifle um, but I mean I know from firsthand experience that if I if I shoot an animal through the lungs with an arrow it is dead literally in under 10 seconds and a lot of times they don't even know that they're hit I was, um, I was talking to a guy here um, a week or so ago and he had he had killed a bull elk on the 2nd of September called the bull in shot him and the bull flinched and ran off like 10 yards stopped and looked back and just dropped right there like the bull didn't even know that he was hit because the arrow you think about if you cut yourself with a sharp knife like it's like oh you don't a lot of times you don't even know it until you feel something sticky mm. you feel blood yep um it's and so I don't I, I think it's just a the thinking that bow hunting is cruel is just um unfamiliarity with it yeah, yeah cool. so uh i guess we should wrap it up there the family's getting out of bed and all that kind of stuff but that that's a really good summary of where you're at so far so thanks heaps for the chat i'm really looking forward to the next two weeks so yeah it's be be good we'll we'll get out in the woods we'll uh see some country hopefully get close to some elk let you uh you ever heard an elk bugle no oh that hopefully yeah i think we can we can maybe make that happen. <laughs> awesome. Cool. All right. Thanks, mate. All right. Stay tuned for the next episode where I speak to not only Clay again, but his wife, Liz, and get her perspective on what their life is like.